what if I would have had someone who looked like me worried about my mental health when I was a child? How much better of a human would I be now? How many of those internal doubts that I have would be eliminated? And I wanted to be one of those people who really drove the conversation and utilized every ounce of my influence to really create something that can revolutionize what's accessible in terms of mental health. Thank you for joining us here today on Doc Working, the Whole Physician Podcast. I want to take a moment and let you know that we've been working around the clock at Doc Working to bring you CME credit so that now you can let your continuing education budget help you to prioritize your own wellness and get on the path to living your best life. Everything we do at Doc Working is specifically designed with you in mind. We hope you'll head over to docworking.com today and take our two-minute quiz to find out where you are right now on the Balance to Burnout continuum. Take our burnout quiz, and this simple step alone can put you in the right direction toward living your best life. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Doc Working, the Whole Physician Podcast. You are going to be in for a treat today. I'm really excited to have Dr. Russell Leday with us. He is a MD, PhD, and an MBA, a native of Lake Charles, Louisiana. Dr. Leday co-founded the 15 White Coats, an organization that helps to propel underrepresented minority students to the next level of education by providing inspiration and economic support. Dr. Lede has been featured on CNN, MSNBC, People Magazine, NPR, Washington Post, The Steve Harvey Show, and last but not least, Good Morning America. Following residency, he plans to focus on mental health accessibility for marginalized communities. He is a husband of 14 years to Mallory Elise and the father of two little girls, Malia Ann and Malina Aubrey. Thank you so much for being with us here, Dr. Lede. Russell, it's just really good to have this conversation. Thank you so much, Joe, for having me. I'm super excited to be speaking on DocWork. So tell me a little bit about your origin story. What led you to where you are today? Yeah, I think it was a sort of a puzzle that we just figured out along the way. When I was growing up, we really didn't have much. And so it was very interesting, the journey that I took to get here. I finished up high school and decided that the United States Navy was the best option. So I enlisted in the United States Navy as a cryptology guy, which basically meant I worked in intelligence for about five years. And as I was finishing up those first five years on active duty, my wife really convinced me that I was smart enough to go to college. She was like, you know, I think you, you have the stuff. So she helped me to apply to college. And obviously I wasn't on active duty anymore. So I needed to get a job and I got a job as a security guard at a hospital, which was rather interesting because it was my first time really being exposed to medicine up close and personal. And because I got that up close and personal experience, you know, and seeing trauma and how it was treated and sort of chronic disease and how that was treated. I started to be intrigued by medicine and really just as I was enamored by the white coats walking around the hospital. And so I would ask them like, hey, you know, how do you become a doctor? Like, what do you do? What do you need to do? And a lot of them were like, like, I don't know why you're worried because like security guards don't become doctors, which I think in hindsight, they were correct. Security guards don't become doctors. Security guards become double doctors. And so, um, (laughs) you know, I always think about that. And so Eventually, I did get someone to say, like, hey, I'll, I'll allow you to shadow me. And he's a surgeon, a guy by the name of Dr. Patrick Garfinstein, who's actually now a trauma surgeon here in New Orleans. 
And that really got me on this trajectory. And I didn't get into medical school the first time, but I did get into graduate school. So I went on to do a PhD at NYU School of Medicine in uh, molecular oncology and tumor immunology, and then decided that going to medical school and business school made sense. So I did a four-year MD MBA at Tulane, and now I'm heading off to Indiana University for a triple board residency in pediatrics, adult psychiatry, and child and adolescent psychiatry. It's a fantastic story and also so sobering to everyone who hears it in understanding how close somebody who is obviously as brilliant as you are with an MD, PhD, I, I think that's literally the most intelligent people in the world. And yet you came pretty close to maybe not even moving on to higher education. What do we all need to learn from that part of your story? That you need someone in your corner who just gives you a chance. For me, my wife was that window. I have been with my wife since high school. So she really was able to see my brain and how it worked and what I was capable of doing, how fast I would read books, just how cerebral I was with just learning things. She was like, you know, I think you're smart enough to go to college. And I remember telling her, like, I thought only rich white people go to college. She was like, no, no, like you can go to college. And I was like, so who's going to pay for it? She was like, you have a GI bill. Like the military will pay for it. You know, it, it was just like these very basic things. And, you know, people always ask me, like, why didn't you go to college out of high school? And I was like, my mama didn't even know how to fill out a FAFSA form. So we didn't even know where to start. And counselors weren't really a thing at the school I went to. So I think you have to look at everyone as if they have the capability to be just as educationally accomplished as me. And if they fall short, that's okay, but you have to give them a chance. And a lot of times people have the resources and the wherewithal to give people a chance because of biases from racist biases or just internal biases, unconscious biases. We overlook people who are probably just as brilliant as me, if not more brilliant. And so we really have to check ourselves. Yeah, I mean, if that's one thing you take away from today, and particularly for our white listeners, just to understand how ingrained the systems are to overlook. And I think we just have to really own that and be willing to think completely differently about who we decide has potential and who doesn't. It's a travesty to think about the impact and brain power that's being wasted because people are being overlooked that could have a huge impact on medicine and on science. Yeah. Yeah. 1000%. And I think a lot of that just comes from doing some self-learning. You know, I always would tell a lot of my friends at all these different educational institutions I went to, I was like, they, they have the ability to change. And I know that because I'm a scientist and I see how fast people are willing to try a new experiment in order to come to a new conclusion or to get new data. And I, and I think that malleability and, and their willingness to learn something new it's something that we can apply to something that's been a problem for a very long time. I always say, like, if we could invest as much money and energy as we did to sequence the entire human genome, you're going to tell me that we can't figure out how to fix structural racism and, you know, and systemic risk. Like, don't tell me that because I know that we're smart enough to do so. We literally figured out how to sequence the entire human genome. And now we're like, we're sequencing tumors every day, all day. Like, we are smart enough to do this. We just got to sit down and, and devote some real time and energy and resources towards it. Yeah, exactly. So your experience of being a scientist in medicine and then on to med school led you to see something that inspired you to do above and beyond just not only the grueling academic rigor 
of getting your PhD and then going into med school, but you said, oh, I need to form an organization. You know, it was totally unintentional. We really, it was just living on purpose. The 15 White Coast was birthed out of a conversation I had with my eight-year-old. We had gone to visit that exact same plantation, the Whitney Plantation, my daughter and I, one of my best friends, the summer before we took that photo. And when we were driving back, my daughter made a comment to me. She said, hey, dad, I finally understand why it's such a big deal to be a Black doctor in America. And I was like, hmm, like, why'd you say that? And she was like, well, we just left a plantation. And like, there was a time when people who looked like you weren't allowed to read or write or count or any of that. And so now I'm riding in the car with two Black doctors. Like, we've come a long way. And that's a big deal. And I was like, yeah, I've been trying to tell you that forever. But uh, then, you know, what came from that was like, oh, we have an opportunity to show the world just how far Black people have come in this country. And so, you know, obviously teamed up with a lot of my classmates and we took those photos. And the intention was for us to remind ourselves of how far we've come, but also how much work we have to do. And the world was obviously inspired by it. And we didn't want to take all of that notoriety just as just notoriety. We wanted to do something with it. And so we started raising money and creating these scholarships. And we also took those photos and put them in classrooms all over the world for free. So a lot of the money that we raise now, even now, goes towards putting those posters in classrooms all over the world for free. Schools can go on our website, sign up for a poster, and we mail it out to them for free. But also we create scholarships for people who are applying, people who are in medical school and need help with preparing for board exams, mental health subscriptions. We just gave out like 20 Calm app subscriptions and we'll continue to evolve in the way that we go about giving out these scholarships, but it's really just to break down that economic barrier to becoming a doctor. Most people don't even know how much it costs to become a doctor. It costs upwards of five to $10,000 to apply to medical school. Yeah, I think there's just a lot of barriers that we need to systemically work on taking them down. An example I heard recently with the physician coaching client trying to recruit more people of color into the particular discipline of surgery and saying, oh, we just have such a hard time attracting people into this. And some people really got down to the nitty gritty and they said, you know, a lot of the students who have come from more economic privilege, they can take a whole summer and just essentially be observing for no pay with a surgeon to decide if that's going to be a discipline that's interesting. And somebody else who maybe needs to earn money who comes from a situation where the parents aren't just funding all of this, doesn't have that opportunity. So they're not going to be attracted into a particular discipline or area without those kind of systemic reach outs to say, okay, how can we financially support somebody to have that same opportunity to observe? And that's, is that the kind of things that you're talking about when you're saying systemic changes? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a perfect example of some of the systemic changes that I think is really just the being conscious of those things, right? And even for those folks who want to apply to those specialties, they can't afford to not match because they need that residency paycheck. They don't have family money to rely on. So they need to match. And the likelihood of matching into some of these specialties where it's still incredibly difficult if you haven't went to the moon and come back, you just can't afford not to match. It, it, obviously, it costs a lot of money to even enter into the match. And so you're, you're at an economic disadvantage when it comes to matching, but you're also at an economic disadvantage when it comes to preparing to match. So exactly what you're talking about, the summer research programs, it, it costs a lot of money to go and do an away rotation. And so, yeah, those disadvantages really are a key driver to the disparities we see in who matches to what specialty. In these conversations, we just can't have them enough because I think there's just not nearly enough awareness. 
So let's talk about during this medical school education that you have gone through and your experience as a scientist and your experience in life and as a veteran, you have also become very interested in focusing on mental health accessibility for marginalized communities. Talk about, if you would, the genesis of that awareness of the need and why you think it's so important for you to focus your life and career on that moving forward. Yeah, I think the biggest driver for my passion around mental health accessibilities for marginalized communities just comes from raising two daughters. I'm raising two little Black girls in the South right now, and obviously we're moving to the Midwest for training, but my oldest child has been a tennis player since she was three years old. And for a lot of listeners who don't know, tennis is a very cerebral sport, and it's also a very white sport. And so my daughter and I have had a lot of conversations around her mental health. This has started probably when she was six, seven years old. We've had these open conversations, and she's told me about the impact of the sport, the way the sport looks, the way the sport is procured and really put together. And obviously, as a coach in tennis, I've looked at a lot of these kids and just looked at where their mental state was when they're playing this game. And then I think back to my own childhood and it's like, wow, what if I would have had someone who looked like me worried about my mental health when I was a child? How much better of a human would I be now? How many of those internal doubts that I have would be eliminated? And I wanted to be one of those people who really drove the conversation and utilized every ounce of my influence to really create something that can revolutionize what's accessible in terms of mental health for children. You know, in my, in my head, I envision an app that literally addresses mental health resources for marginalized communities and makes it accessible, you know, just as accessible as Google is to everyone. And I think that would really, really, really help. I don't necessarily know how I'll do it yet. I got to become a child psychiatrist first. But in the meantime, obviously, I'll, I know how to balance more than one thing. So I'll figure it out. Yeah, it's a pretty, pretty amazing intention and goal to set your sights on, particularly at this point in your career. And I think the conversation is opening up coming out of the pandemic about understanding childhood and adolescent mental health and how it isn't just a thing that happens to people who aren't parented well. It kind of exposed that there's just a lot of pressures. The conversation has said probably a lot of us in older generations just put a lot of stuff under the rug, didn't deal with trauma. And that is continuing to create mental health issues in generations that are coming up now. They're just being more open about it. And hopefully the solution is coming. And your emphasis on how much more challenging it is for underserved um, and marginalized communities, I think is a really very, very important place to take the conversation as well. Yeah, I think, you know, when we look at suicide rates among young Black children, they're the highest they've ever been. That's scary. It's scary for me as a parent. That's scary for me as a tennis coach. That's scary for me as a budding child psychiatrist. It's one thing for me to recognize the emotion of it being scary. It's another thing for me to recognize that emotion and do something about it. And so I think I think there's some power coming. I think there's a, a budding partnership with the National Association of Mental Illness to address it in young children, especially in marginalized communities that I'll be working on. I think we'll do something powerful. I think we'll change the way things are done and address it in a major way. I am so excited to follow the impact that you have on medicine, on the world, on marginalized communities, on all of this. It is just incredible to see how you are able to take a vision and an idea and carry it through with a follow-through that is beyond 
uh, it's superhuman. (laughs) I can't imagine anybody else being able to do all the things that you've done. Dr. Russell Lede, thank you so much for this conversation. How can people reach out to you or reach out to learn more about what it is you're doing and to support any of the projects that you have going? Yeah. So to reach out to me personally on LinkedIn, it's Dr. Russell Lede. On on Instagram, it's at Dr. Russell Lede. And really to, to ping the 15 white coats, at the 15 white coats on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And we have a website where people can figure out what we're doing and make donations, which 100% go towards our cause at www.the15whitecoats.org. We're doing really good work. And I hope you all not only listen, but donate. Well, I'm excited for the next leg of your career in Indianapolis as you move toward a career as a child psychiatrist. And thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, for inspiring us, to pointing our attention in the direction where it definitely needs to go around accessibility to medical education for a much broader group of highly capable people and for helping us to all remember that accessibility to mental health for children needs to go all the way across the board. This has been a really powerful and inspiring conversation. I just want to thank you. Thank you so much, Joe, for having me. This was awesome. And uh, I'll definitely be back. That's for sure. And thanks all of you for joining in for this conversation. Please share it, share it widely. These are important concepts that we all need to be talking about. And also go to docworking.com today for information on how you can thrive in work and in life. Until next time, I'm Jill Farmer. At Docworking, we're here to help you maximize your potential on your own terms and help you live your best life. You told us what you need and want, and we built this for you. Whatever your journey is, you have options. You can choose to live the life you want to live. We see you. We get you. And now let's get you in the driver's seat of your own life so you can find purpose in your work and everything you do and every choice you make. Top executives, athletes, actors all achieve greatness with the support of professional coaches. As a healthcare professional, You deserve ongoing coaching support toward achieving your career goals and living your best life as you define it on your own terms. We have created this specifically for you with CME credit at docworking.com. Please go to docworking.com and check out our quick balance to burnout quiz to see where you are on the balance to burnout continuum right now. The results might surprise you. Taking this simple first step may change your life for the better. And until next time, thank you for listening to Doc Working, the Whole Physician Podcast.